Welcome to Always and Forever, a One Tree Hill podcast where two lifelong friends and super fans analyze and dissect the greatest teen show from the early 2000s. I'm Caitlin Illinich. And I'm Jeremy Rodriguez. Earlier this week, you heard our discussion of Season 3, Episode 16, with tired eyes, tired minds, tired souls, we slept. And if you have not listened to that yet, please go back and do so now. Did you know it? Are you back? Welcome back. Glad you're here. So, today, we are having a discussion about the episode's deeper themes, and to help us out, we were joined by Gavi Kovacs, a mental health professional and fellow One Tree Hill fan. This was an amazing discussion. Yes, it was a very great way to complement our regular episodic discussion, because this episode was very serious and we wanted to do it right, so we needed a little bit more insight, and Gavi does an amazing job of doing that, talking about the deeper themes like bullying. We addressed the, the idea of whether or not Jimmy was an incel. There were a lot of great conversations revolving this. And we also talk about, like, if this episode truly is a school shooting episode. And I feel like having a mental health professional on was, like, a really important piece to the discussion. Absolutely. All right, let's get into this episode. A warning at the top. This episode will include discussions of school gun violence, bullying, and suicide. Please take care while listening. Additionally, if you need to speak with someone, you can call the Suicide and Crisis Lifeline at 988. Help is available 24-7. And for one final warning, this episode will include spoilers for the entirety of One Tree Hill. Somebody told me that this is the place where everything's better and everything's safe. Thank you so much, Gavi, for joining us today on this really big One Tree Hill episode. Yeah, of course. Happy to be here. So, Gavi, tell the listeners a little bit about your professional backgrounds, and as well as your relationship to One Tree Hill. Tell us everything. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I'll start with One Tree Hill, just because I got into that before. Uh, (laughs) So I'll go chronologically. Um, freshman year of college, my roommate and I were just looking for a TV show to watch together to like hang out. Um, and we both really liked Chad Michael Murray. Uh, so we decided to watch One Tree Hill and we were like, oh, this is like going to be one of those trashy little soaps. My friend told me like a bunch of plot points, um, because no one she knew watched it in high school. And I was like, so I know it's like absolutely insane. So let's try it out. And I wound up absolutely loving it and like crying heavily a lot. Um, So that was really, really nice. Um, And then I moved to California for graduate school and I got my master's in forensic psychology. And right now I'm working more as like a general therapist, but I do have that forensic specialty. And a lot of people are always like, what does that mean? When they think forensics, they think more hard sciences. Um, And so forensic psychology just means of or pertaining to the law. So that could be working with criminals. That could be working with victims or survivors. Oh, my God. I'm so sorry about my dog. Um, Our doorbell is ringing. He's letting me know. I'm so sorry. Give me five That's a good transition. Do, do you want to tell your? Do you want to tell the listeners the name of your dog? Oh yes, um, my dog's name is Chad Michael Murray. It is because we love Chad Michael Murray. He is the quintessential white boy from the early two thousands, and 
We absolutely heart it. He's a little white boy, just a mini white poodle. So. I love that so much. <laughs> yes. Thank you, thank you. My friends helped me name him. I got him in college. <laughs> He'll be good ambient noise, honestly. Like, I don't even want to edit him out. Like, <laughs> like, let's just keep let's just keep him there. It's fine. Chad, See, you're part of this episode too. He knew we were talking about One Tree Hill. Yeah, he knew. So. He was like, "Okay, I'm ready. Let's do it." I heard, I heard Chad. Oh my gosh. Um, but anyway, yeah. What, 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 what were you saying now before Chad interrupted? Yeah. So forensic just means like of or pertaining to the law. So forensic psychology really is psychology as it pertains to the law. So that's criminals, victims, or survivors, however you choose to categorize that. Uh, law enforcement, um, stuff like that. So anything that tangentially or directly relates to the law, that would be where my specialty lies. That is interesting and surprising because I, I, I didn't really know that about forensic psychology or even thought that was a thing. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Most people think forensic psychology, they think a little bit like criminal minds, um, which is super fun. And they use psychology, but that's not really it. I don't know if you guys ever watch like Law and Order SVU, but the best example I give is B.D. Wong's character in SVU. He goes in, he does assessments. He's like, this is my... You know, whatever. That's what I do. That is really interesting. And then, so currently, you are um, like a general therapist, yeah. counselor. Yeah. So right now, I'm I'm working towards my licensure. It's like a two year process. Um, and so right now, I work with low income people. So people who you know maybe need some extra services, and I provide some psychotherapy for them at a company that provides other things for them as well, such as housing. Wow! Fantastic. And today we are having you talk about this episode of One Tree Hill, which is a lot. Yes. Yeah, it's a, it's a big one, all right. So I guess to kick things off, uh, so at the very beginning of the episode, it sort of starts off with like this manifesto that Jimmy delivers. And the thing that I immediately thought of when I saw this, I was actually thinking about Elliot Roger. And, you know, how he recorded a video talking about how much he hated women and how much he hated society for, like, why he was a, why he was the way he was. And that ultimately led to him killing six people, injuring 14 others in California. So when I was thinking about that, I'm just wondering, like, if, uh, and Caitlin, feel free to chime in, but Coffee, like, what do you think? Do you think Jimmy is an incel? Is that like a loaded language to use or? I don't. And um, an incel is a very specific type of person who's been like red pilled or whatever. Generally, um, I'm sure most people know, but just for those out there in podcast world who might not know, it stands for involuntary celibate. Uh, and so that really has to do with feelings of entitlement and that, you know, you're owed women's bodies or you're owed somebody's, you know, time. And when they're denied that, it feels like oppression. It feels like you're actively doing something to harm them. And so they're going to harm you back. Um, whereas for Jimmy, I think it was more like, I just really hate my life. I'm bullied all the time. Everybody sucks. And you know what? Just like everybody says in you know 20 years, they're all going to be like fat losers. And I'm going to be like so cool. Um, I think it really was just more venting of like, this is actually some somewhere that I could say what I really feel and no one's going to hurt me. 
you know, because he feels like he has no friends. You know, Mouth ditched him, according to him. So who else is he going to talk to? So my question is, like, in that, if we call it that, a manifesto Mm -hmm. at the beginning, which is the time capsule video, he seems like he is targeting groups that have wronged him in some Mm -hmm. way. Yeah. Like, he's not specifically blaming women, which I feel like that's where the big uh, ideology for incel comes from. Right. And he's blaming the jocks not because they're chads that always get the girls, but because his friends actively joined those two cliques, like the popular cheerleaders and jocks clique. And Mm. they literally stole his friends. And that's what he's upset about. They no longer hang out with him because they hang out together. And I think that's really evidenced in that episode when um, Nathan comes into the room and Jimmy's pointing the gun at him. And he was like, you know, I thought you guys were mad at each other or whatever. Like, now you're all lovey-dovey, of course, like guys like you. And it wasn't like guys like you get the girl. It was more like things are easy for guys like you. Just in general, everything is easy. School is easy. Social relationships are easy. And they're not easy for me because I am different and I look different. Yeah. So, I mean, does he see Nathan as a typical, like, Chad? I don't think he does. I think that he Uh sees Nathan for who he was at the beginning of season one, just like a dick. Okay. Okay. (laughs) He doesn't know that Nathan did all of that soul searching and emotional work. Mm-hmm. That is, yeah, that is true. So he probably just sees Nathan as like the the villain that his that his best friends left him for. I can see that. Yeah, and the villain that probably bothered him, you know, and bullied him because they were bullying Lucas in the first episode as well. And he's been friends with Lucas, so it's not so much of a stretch to be like, my friends left me for one of the people that used to bully me. And for those who don't know, how would you describe a Chad? Just so that terminology is clear for Absolutely. everyone listening. Yeah. So You also mentioned red pill earlier. Can you uh, go a little bit into the details about that as well? Yes. So the red pill, it's something from the Matrix that was stolen and bastardized to fit this anti-feminist narrative. And so now when people refer to like being red pilled, um, it's more of being an anti-feminist and defending rape culture and, again, feeling that entitlement. Um, Generally, it's full of incels. Um, And then they have these, like, different nicknames for different groups. So they have the normies, which are just, like, regular people who, I guess, don't offend them in some way. Uh, You have the chads, which are the physically desirable men. And so they kind of embody the masculinity that everyone is sold and that they themselves might not have. Um, then you have Stacy's, which are the unattainable women that always date the chads and they're fake and they're shallow and, you know, they just want the alpha male so that they can be high status. Um, and then the last one will be a Becky, which is a feminist and it's supposed to be offensive, but it's not. Giant eye roll <laughs> from me here. <laughs> well, yeah. So if Jimmy is not, if you don't think he is actually an incel, then what would you say is the biggest issue with Jimmy. Like, what do you think is propelling him to act in this way? Okay, so when he first pulls out the gun, it's right after he was bullied again. You know, he was physically touched in a way, you know, pushed by a shoulder, and then he saw that all of his things had been messed with, and they're broken, and they're ripped, and his locker is a mess. And, you know, he probably did feel some of that impotent rage that incels do feel, but not because, again, like a woman said no to him, but 
because he's been dealing with this his entire life and he is just so sick of it. You know, he's he's so sick of being invisible. And you see that, like, he pulled out the gun. It seemed more like he wanted to scare the guy. And when the gun went off, his face was like, oh, my God, I just made this gun go off. And he was terrified. Um, and you could see that. He actually closed his eyes when he did it, if you pay attention. And then when the gun goes off, you know, and hits the glass, and he's like, you see him open his eyes. And you're mm. right. It's just like terror basically oh i didn't notice that his eyes were closed that's very interesting yeah and i don't read it as like i'm closing my eyes so that i could shoot you but like i'm closing my eyes so i can be like get yourself together get yourself together like say something intimidating or like you know be strong you know something like that kind of giving himself a pep talk and the gun went off it didn't seem to me like he actually was like you're the one that i want to shoot bam yeah, because he wasn't the uh, the bullies that knocked all the stuff out of his locker. He didn't aim at them. Right. And I feel like that's an interesting thought right there in general. Yeah, I thought it was interesting to have a school shooting episode where nothing really happened. Like, Payne got shot in the leg, and then in, like, the next episode, she's fine. Yeah. <laughs> you know? Right, exactly. At least in Degrassi, like, Aubrey Graham was in a wheelchair, You know what I mean? Like, there was something he had to get over, not only the mental trauma, but the physical trauma. Like, there was a storyline that was propelled forward, but this was like, what if someone brought a gun to school and nothing happened? And everyone was just scared. (laughs) The fear, though, even if nothing happened, there is that fear, which is traumatic. But I see Mm -hmm. what you're saying, that it's not a realistic portrayal of what actually occurs in our current world you know when someone a shooter goes into a school there are either many injuries or many deaths so yeah i think i don't know where we went ahead next in this conversation but i feel like the most natural point is to talk about like what did they get wrong in 2006 versus like what we know now about school shooters that's a really great question. And also, like, they talked about this on the Drama Queens podcast when they did their very special episode on, on this episode as well. And they're talking about how our entire country's understanding of what a school shooter is or looks like was just completely wrong. And so the way that we kind of see it now is it's, you know, a lone gunman or two lone gunmen who are friends, but they're only friends with each other and they're loners and... They're alone gunmen, um, you know, who are bullied. And it's it's actually really the bully's fault. Like, if they had just been a little bit nicer, maybe this guy wouldn't have needed to bring a gun into school and he wouldn't have needed to murder anybody. And that's what it was. And we know now, thanks to, you know, people posting manifestos, that that's not really the case. You know, it's not because they were bullied or because they were unpopular. It, it's because they feed into this culture of aggression and toxic masculinity in which they want to feel more powerful. And it's, I mean, at least to me, it's, it's almost like a a little phallic to like take this thing and be like, you know, in like criminal minds and stuff, they're always like, aha, the stabbing, it's, it's a phallic thing. And I don't necessarily know how to like explain why that is either, but 
it like I think it's like it's the, you know the penetration I guess of it and and with a gun it's similar with the bullet does the penetration but you hold this thing and you're like aha now I'm a man and that gives them the confidence to go and do these things that any person that has empathy for anybody else would probably not do. Yeah, that's an interesting point you bring up, because nowadays people are posting manifestos and whatnot, because back in the days of Columbine, and even way before that, and around that era, I should say, people didn't have access to social media. People didn't have access to, like, really uh, process their thoughts and put it on the internet. So I feel like, you know, people were able to more project, like, these narratives onto these mass shooters, whereas, like, nowadays we really can't do that anymore. Right. And I think what's what's so interesting about social media is that we have access to these warning signs. Police have access to DV records, um, past access to weapons and firearms, message board posts, YouTube posts. Like there are all these things that are often reported. And so many of these uh, school shooter, mass casualty, mass shooter events um, there were warning signs and people had reported them to the police. But unfortunately, according to the Supreme Court, police do not actually have an obligation to protect us. They have an obligation to just figure out what happened after we are dead. And it's something that a lot of women or, you know, non-cis men kind of feel because when they try to report stalking, for instance, they're like, sorry, you didn't really do anything. I understand that stalking is illegal. And like, this is something that we could arrest them for. He didn't actually kill you or hurt you. Therefore, sucks to suck. Mm. Okay, so from a 2006 mindset, when we didn't know too much about mass shooters, is this episode supposed to make us sympathize with them? in, like, this really misguided way. Yeah, it's a lot of mixed messaging, and I think the reporter kind of feeds into that one as well, you know, where she's like, Brooke's like, oh, you're a horrible person, and she and the reporter basically is like, but aren't you also a horrible person for, like, not befriending this guy that you did not want to be friends with and giving your time to this person that you didn't want to give your time to? And so it's this really mixed message where it's like, Bullying leads to this. So therefore, everyone has to go out of their way to like be sure to coddle the outcasts so that they don't shoot. And if they do, that means that you didn't do enough to coddle them. Right, right. And that's just an unrealistic expectation to put on people because it's impossible to be friends with everybody. Absolutely. And it's also, again, like women don't have they don't owe you their time, their presence, their friendship. If someone wants to be friends with you, it's probably because they want to be friends with you. Yeah, right. Hmm. And it's also kind of a weird ending as well, because like at the on the one hand, they're like, you know, kids are people, too. And we have to show them respect and sympathy and understand them and blah, blah, blah. But again, the way that they did this school shooting episode makes it really easy to forgive Jimmy because the only person that he killed was himself. You know, the only the only death was him, which is far more often what happens in more loner cases like this. They're more likely to kill themselves than to kill another person. And so because he was the only death, it's very easy to be like he was just in so much pain and like lots of people could have done something about it. And unfortunately, no one did. And it feels like, you know, his parents failed him. The doctor failed him when he had that suicide attempt. And they were like, oh, it's just a little accident. You're fine. Go ahead. Mm -hmm. Go back to school. Don't worry about it. Right, right. And so you are able to feel empathy for this kid who felt he had no choice but to kill himself. When in reality, yes, many mass shooters will be like, 
you know, on a type of suicide mission almost is, you know, I know that I'm going in here and I'm not coming out, but I'm going to take as many as you of you with me as I possibly can. And that's traumatizing. And that's terrifying. And yes, of course, the students in Tree Hill were traumatized by the presence of a gun on their campus, but it is much easier to get over a trauma of there was a scare than I walked past my friend's dead bodies and I like had to step over puddles of blood, you know? And and in those cases, no, no, you shouldn't have to feel sympathy for the shooter. That's, that's just re-traumatizing the actual victims. And you know, saying that the perpetrator is, is the real victim in all of this. Right, right. And yeah, just like you said, it is a little bit easier to sympathize with Jimmy because we, the audience, know that Jimmy didn't kill Keith. Right. Um, But as far as the school knows, they do think that Jimmy killed Keith. Right. Which makes it interesting because later on in season four, um, Mouth passes around a yearbook for everybody to sign in Jimmy's honor because there wasn't a memorial page in the yearbook for Jimmy. Mm -hmm. So, like, I mean, what are your thoughts on that storyline in general? Like, you know, I'm just just saying from the school's (laughs) perspective, I should say. I'm such a sucker for, like... Doing something nice like that, you know, it it seems like (laughs) Mouth was really upset, A, that Jimmy wasn't remembered, but also his mom was going to get this yearbook, this blank yearbook with her son cut out of it. Only his ear is in the yearbook. Her son that she loved and who was in a lot of pain and is no longer with her. Right. Um, So I thought that it was insanely compassionate of Mouth to do that again, even though he, he did believe that Jimmy killed Keith, he also kind of understood Jimmy was in a lot of pain. And of course, we know he didn't actually do it. And that is much better. But I think Lucas knowing that Jimmy didn't do it and being the first one to sign the yearbook kind of made other people be like, well, it's it's not like Jimmy's gone, but like we can make that death mean something for his mother. We can help make her feel better because this is a really hard time for her. She won't get to see her son graduate, like all of the parents that she's friends with. Yeah, and but if I, by doing that, though, like, is that, like, ignoring the, the fact that he brought a gun to school? And I'm not trying to challenge you by saying no, that. No, of I'm course just not. Like, These are valid yeah, I'm, I'm trying to, like, you know, just, like, paint, like, a bigger picture as far as that's concerned, yeah. you know? Yeah, and in a TV show, I love it. Like I said, I'm such a sucker for those yes. things. But... <laughs> In actuality, the principal made the correct decision because seeing Jimmy in the yearbook could have absolutely re-traumatized people. If Peyton were a real person and she really were shot in the leg and then she got her yearbook and was flipping through and saw the photo, the face of a person who shot her in the leg that she like had to go through months of rehab for to like fix and learn how to walk and like actual mental therapy so that she could like feel comfortable walking through the front door at school walking through the library at school that's so traumatic for no reason when you could just remove them yeah and it just brings up the question like what is that like what is a responsible thing to do do you want to like you to do something nice for his mother because regardless of like what happened like she still lost her son, mm-hmm. and that still is traumatizing for her. So, like, what is the right thing to do? Do you think about the victims here, or do you think about the mother here? And that's just, that's very complicated. And Yeah, it I is don't... very complicated. The mother is definitely also a victim, but unfortunately, it's not the school's job to, you know, make sure that their the parents of their students or ex-students are, you know, okay, mentally, emotionally, you know, they're there to make sure that their students are okay. You know, it's in loco parentis. And yeah, you know, they were seniors, mostly only seniors get the yearbooks, but also like, 
there were three other grades worth of children in there, you know, or teenagers in there. And you have to think Mm. about them as well. And they have to be spending more time here. How would they feel if their administration put the photo again of the person who brought a gun into the school in the yearbook? They stay in the library, maybe like things are about in the photo, like yearbook office, stuff like that. Like that could be traumatizing for the freshmen who then have to go like three more years with like Jimmy's face haunting them. That's a really great point that I didn't even think about before. I think it's interesting because we are viewing this as a school shooting episode. And I know in the Drama Queens podcast, I think it was Hillary who said, this doesn't feel like a school shooting episode. This is like, I think she said a suicide or mental health, some version of that kind of episode. And that would be correct. What this episode really reminded me of, and I'm going back to Degrassi again, just because it is the prototype for a lot of like teen soap things. And they had an episode way back in, I think it was Degrassi High in the 80s. And I think it was like Caitlin's boyfriend, Cloud, Claude, Claude is his name. It's ridiculous. <laughs> he wasn't He wasn't even French Canadian. Like he, regular Canadian accent, Claude. Um, <laughs> oh, God. <laughs> He was a severely depressed guy and he took a gun to school and he, you know, put in his backpack out of his locker and took it to the bathroom and he shot himself and Snake found him. And actually, just aside for Degrassi, haha, uh, Snake is the one who has found every single body that has ever been killed in Degrassi. He has been there and seen the body for all of them. Oh my. Interesting. This poor man. I've never seen Degrassi, but like, I like hearing it's you like talk about it. It's like four of them. Like, Maybe it's, it's not that many. It's four, but four for four is a lot. You know? <laughs> wow. This poor guy. <laughs> I wouldn't work there anymore, but that's just me. Um, but he, so that's more like what this feels like to me. It felt more like Jimmy was planning on killing himself in the school to sort of 13 reasons why everybody, you know, this is the place where I feel at my lowest. And also my body will be found very quickly. And it won't be yeah. my mother, the only person that actually cares about me. I don't want to traumatize her that way. Um, right, right. And it felt like he just kind of was like, yeah, but I'm power- like, stop being mean to me, you know, and he just messed it up. And he even says that in the Tudor century. He's like, does this seem well planned to you? This is clearly not what I was trying to do. I, mm-hmm. I was going to bring that up too. Yeah. Yeah. And most most mass shootings are very much planned. Again, you have manifestos. That's like, these are all the people that I want to murder when I go on my murder spree. And that just wasn't what Jimmy was putting out there. Yeah. So like, is it like, is it realistic for somebody who's having like clear mental health issues to to bring a gun to school and not think clearly? Because I feel like this is the narrative that conservatives will always put out there, saying like we need to pay for mental health rather than pay for gun control. So we need it, it to just do makes, both. <laughs> yeah, we definitely need yes. to do both. But so like, but like, is this even a a possible reality for somebody to just like come in just? With a god, like, no plan whatsoever? So nowadays, no. No one would think about bringing a gun to school unless it was for some type of thing like a school shooting. But back in 2006, I don't necessarily know the gun culture, but I can infer that it was a lot more lax. And again, kids, when they kill themselves, they often think about where they will do it and who will find their body and who they 
you know, want to find their body who they don't want to find their body. And so in this case, I think it makes sense. Like, where else is he going to go? And I, I find it interesting, like the opening scene of the episode when he's smoking the cigarette is such an image in my head. And it's like he's trying to get the courage to walk inside. I wonder, like, was that, was he getting the courage, you know, was he planning to shoot someone? We most likely not from based on the evidence we just talked about. Or is he, did he know know all along that he was going to like kill himself at the end of this? He wasn't going to be walking out of that school. The impression that I got was that he was trying to build up the courage to go inside the school and kill himself. This episode is, and you know, in the last episode, just watch the fireworks, I wrote, you know, he's saying all of these things in this video that are clearly painting him as this loner who doesn't feel that he has anybody. But we don't know, like, does he have mental health issues? Does he have a history of anxiety, of depression, something that would really help explain why this is his worldview, why he feels like everybody sucks and everybody hates me because I have no friends. And so in in this episode, this is where we learn that he does have a history of depression. He has a history of suicidality. He has no history of homicidality, you know? And so just based on that history, it would follow that he was more trying to work up the courage to kill himself than to kill anybody else. That makes a lot of sense. Yeah, it does. So um, to fast forward to the end of the episode, we see Keith tries to talk Jimmy down by saying that I've been there. So... One of the things I was wondering, like, while watching that scene, is, like, is this idea trying to normalize the idea of bringing a gun to school as a response to being in pain? Yes. Yeah, and I felt it was absolutely an attempt to normalize it, not just for Jimmy, but for people who were watching it, you know? Depression is very common amongst teenagers, especially in high schools, when a lot of it feels like you're competing against one another for some imaginary prize, Um, You know, where you feel like you have to act a certain way so you could be in a certain group so that you can feel like you're not alone. And again, he doesn't have that. He does feel very much alone. And for Keith, we know that he wasn't popular in school. We know that, you know, er earlier on, we see that there was when they were kids, uh, Keith would be the one to protect Dan. But as they grew older, Dan started to pick on Keith because Dan was more popular. He was more charismatic. He's got that superficial charm. And for me, it would be plausible to believe that he then picked on Keith and had his friends pick on Keith the way that Nathan picked on Lucas and had his friends pick on Lucas. You know, it's it's the, you know, just patterns, really. And for Keith to be like, I literally was in this position. I mean, I was the Lucas in this position, but without being able to join the basketball team and become popular. So really, he's the analog for Jimmy in that situation. And He's saying, you know, it does get better, which, again, is a common anti-suicide refrain. You know, don't kill yourself because things will get better. People don't generally say don't kill someone else because it will get better. Yeah. Like, I I keep wondering if, if it would be, if this uh, whole storyline would be a little bit more digestible if we saw Keith have thoughts of suicide Mm-hmm. And he was trying to talk Jimmy down because he recognized something within himself. But this was just sort of Keith being like, hey, I tried to kill somebody last year because I was really upset. And you know what? You don't have to do that. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so it's kind of it is kind of a weird message. Yeah. And I think we kind of might see a little bit of that history, though, when 
he gets rejected by Karen earlier in, I think it's maybe season two. Um, don't quote me on that. Correct me if I'm incorrect. That's season one. Uh, yeah. Season one, where he like he moves away because he's like, I can't handle being here in this town like with these things. And he was like, and a better thing for me to do than like go into a depression spiral would be to leave and like try to forge a new life. And so in that, you kind of see that he potentially had some experience with those feelings. And so he knew what to mm. do about them. Okay, that's true. And then... Also, when Jules left, Mm -hmm. I think we can infer that Keith was depressed in that moment because then he goes off to try to find her and then he's not on the show for a while. Yeah. Yes, absolutely. Like off screen, I guess we can assume, but we don't like directly see that as an audience, which is unfortunate because that would make more of a parallel with Jimmy's storyline. Just having a gun and seeking revenge, you know, that doesn't really have anything to do with depression. It seems to me more like this episode should have been more focused on mental health and kind of the, the yeah, the effects of bullying and how that could come to a disastrous end. But they didn't do it correctly, in my opinion. It could have been a lot to have seen a flashback of of Jimmy like in the hospital you know did my friends call did you know did mouth call at all I you know I've been trying to reach out to him you know something like that to be like I was very much alone at my lowest and you know talking about that to the therapist that he probably had to see while he was in the hospital and just kind of more focusing on like the way that we treat people really does matter and in Episode 413, Pictures of You, the teacher in the beginning, he's like, like it or not, you are who your classmates see you as. And Jimmy very much felt that. he, His classmates saw him as negligible, as invisible, as not mattering. And he was like, well, I can't pull a Marcy. You know, I can't just disappear. So maybe... <laughs> Marcy is a Buffy the Vampire Slayer <laughs> reference, by the way, Caitlin. Okay. <laughs> Uh, So he was like, maybe I'll make them see me before I make myself disappear, you know, like a twisted magician. You know, now you see me, now you don't. I want all of you to see me die, maybe. Right. So I feel like, and, and you know, I'm not asking to like rewrite the episode on the spot right here, but like, how do you think this episode could have been if it did focus on mental health rather than the whole drama of a school shooting, quote unquote? Yeah. So it would have shown probably Keith kind of experiencing parallels of what Jimmy's experienced. We've only seen Jimmy's bullying experience for the past like two episodes because they didn't actually have the actor there in the background like getting beat up all the time. We we didn't see any of that. So we only saw like, what, a week's worth of, you know, days in One Tree Hill. And that's not enough for us to really understand the dark place that Jimmy was in. So we need to see more of that. We need to see flashbacks of like, you know, little Jimmy getting like tripped and the, the older boys being like, ha ha, fatso or whatever they do in 2006. And Mouth comes and like helps him up or Lucas comes and helps him up and is like, don't worry about him. He's just an idiot, you know? And then how now there's no one to help him up, you know? Rachel pepper sprays the guy, but not because of him, not at all. It was just an excuse for her to use her pepper spray. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <gasps> Which uh, we talked a lot about in our in our last episode. We're like, oh, like, like could could things have ended up differently? But also, thought Rachel's responsibility right. because like she 
you know, didn't raise that arm out for him. Right. But at the same time, Rachel was Jimmy back in middle school. That was the whole point of her body transformation was to no longer be the Jimmy. And so on the one hand, I see Mm, that they were putting her in the mindset of, well, I did something about it. Why can't he? But they could have put her in the mindset of, this is what I used to go through and it sucks. And maybe I could just tell him that it sucks and maybe it could get better. You know? I never even thought about that narrative and like the two parallels. So that's very interesting. Yeah. Well, that's why she was so very like the whole uh, the four. Uh, sorry, 315 and 316. The whole time she's just like, he needs to get over it. He needs to like you can't be him for him mouth like he needs to be his own person, which is absolutely true. And she took control of her life. But not everybody can just go get a surgery so that they could feel beautiful, you know, and she knows what it feels like to be bullied because of what you look like to not have any friends because you move around too much. I mean, he's not moving around, but he's lived in the same town his whole life and he has no friends, you know, like there was an opportunity for her to drop that mask and show Jimmy the Rachel that Mouth sees. And then that would also give Jimmy an opportunity to be like, well, maybe these popular kids like aren't having the easiest time they just have a really good support system this story could have been its its own arc (laughs) like it's this could have been a multi-episode story and it's a shame that it wasn't that and colin ficus does a fantastic job in portraying jimmy so there's just such a missed opportunity here we could have gotten so much more story it could have been more developed and we could have gotten to see, like you said, these parallels and where where could it have gone from there, you know? Yeah. And, you know, it's possible that it still would have ended up the way that it ended up, but we would have understood it more. And, you know, even if they didn't necessarily want to give him a storyline, just like have him in the background every couple of episodes, like getting the book smacked out of his hands, like have Mouth and Lucas and Skills like walk right past him in the hallway. Just show us that this is happening. Don't just tell us that this is happening because we need to understand, we need to see the hurt on his face. Yeah, exactly. And, and Colin Ficus does bring that emotion across, I feel like, with all these little monologues, but... Yeah, he, he was so good. Just, I saw the anger, the fear, like all of that. He's got really good face acting. Yes, but it would have been much better to actually see it happen yeah. and to see this go on for multiple episodes, especially like with Colin Ficus, who is uh, who is queer in real life, too. I feel like this would have been such an inspiration. Yeah. It's, it would have been such an inspirational story to see, like, I, I just wish there was, like, an alternate reality where both him and Keith survived and they helped each other. But I know we're watching a drama right now and it's not going to work out that way. And this whole storyline... I mean, with Dan shooting Keith, it does produce a lot of great storylines for the show. It's beautiful, but it still just makes you wonder what if in general. I actually stopped the episode right before all of that. I was like, Dan's headed in. I'm done. Goodbye. (laughs) I know what happens. I don't need to see that anymore. I don't need to re-traumatize myself. (laughs) Yes. And try us. We watched the episode probably three or four times in preparation. (laughs) I feel emotionally traumatized. (laughs) Um... At one point, Lucas goes up to Keith and he's like, you know, Jimmy sounded really dark, really different. And Keith's like, well, that's not the happy-go-lucky kid that I knew. We've never known Jimmy to be happy-go-lucky. We saw him in the pilot and he was like uncomfortable the whole time. Which <laughs> the only is one I remember fair. saying is, we're sports announcers. <laughs> that's all I yeah, remember. Yeah, <laughs> like he, and it's fair, you know, these, these kids have been bullying him probably his whole life. 
but we don't see him really have a change. Again, you know, if they had made it an arc, we could have seen maybe flashbacks to the happy-go-lucky kid, and then, like, as it's progressively getting, you know, in this deeper and deeper depression. And not to challenge what you both said, in a way, though, I do think the fact that he wasn't in, like, he was in the first two episodes of the entire show, and then we don't see him again until 3.15, in a way, it supports this invisibility that Jimmy feels, which we as the audience have not seen him. So it it just makes sense in a way, because the characters haven't interacted with him. We as an audience haven't seen him. No, in that regard, it definitely makes sense. And it definitely is showing, not telling us, that they very easily ditched him and, and forgot about him the way that we forgot about him, you know, just like Jesse yeah. in the first two episodes of Buffy, too. Like, he's gone. Jesse who? Um, <laughs> right? And now it's Jimmy who? But, the, you know, when he's in the Tudor Center, he was like, do I get back the days I got spit on or the day I learned to look at the floor when I walked in the halls? Or how about the day my dad came to pick me up and he saw me getting my ass kicked on the quad and realized his son was a loser? You ever see the look in your father's eyes when he realizes that? We don't see any of this and we never saw any of this. You know, even in the first few episodes, like, it was all directed at Lucas. You know, Jimmy was just there while it was happening. And so we never saw that. And that's what I would have liked to see more of. Yeah, absolutely. And um, there's a, there's a moment in the audio commentary for this episode, if you watch the DVDs, and it's also in the anatomy of an episode documentary special on the DVDs. But during the audio commentary, Sophia says, and, and I'm not holding, like, I'm not holding Sophia Bush or Moira Kelly responsible for these comments because different time, like, I'm pretty sure they don't think this now. Mm -hmm. So just big disclaimer, disclaimer, disclaimer. But during the commentary, Sophia said, something like this hasn't happened in a very long time. Thank God. And we didn't want to give a child an idea to do that. She's talking about, mm -hmm. like, filming the episode. And um, she said, we were doing a service to why this happens and why it shouldn't. And similarly, on the documentary, Moira Kelly said that Jimmy didn't come to this decision on his own. So it's, I feel like, uh, I feel like the writers and the actors kind of had this mentality that it was being pushed on them that, you know, the, the victims were responsible for what happens yeah and it again like our collective understanding of the psychological factors that go into making someone decide to be a school shooter or a mass shooter we didn't understand it we had the wrong mm -hmm. information for way too long and even now that we have the correct information a lot of people are like but what about that old information i thought that was really good and you know they think it's the violence that they've experienced you know bullying or abuse by a parent or something like that or the violent video games but it's not any of that and in fact sometimes video games can be a really good outlet for those emotions same way that jimmy venting to that camera was actually a really good outlet for those emotions if you hold on to big emotions for too long you will explode you'll burst into tears you'll start screaming you'll do something but you will explode and so being able to purge those big feelings helps to process them. And again, the way that we socialize boys with toxic masculinity is you're a man. Men don't cry. Men have two emotions, neutral and angry. And when you don't have the language skills to express your emotions properly, it can be really difficult to process them. And that's why two-year-olds throw tantrums, because they don't know how to say that they're disappointed that they didn't get what they want. They know happy, sad, mad. 
you know? And, and mm-hmm. so giving young boys the language to express themselves and what's bothering them goes a long way to n- not having things like this happen. And that's exemplified so beautifully again in Nathan. Nathan was violent. He was aggressive. It's because of the violence and aggression that he faced at home from Dan. And we know that. And he kind of was monkey see, monkey doing. And then he met Haley and Haley was like, that's actually not how you treat people. And he was like, it's not? Let me go on this journey of self-discovery and understand. And again, in that episode just prior, he talks, you know, there's the benefit and he, you know, Haley's like, oh, I'm nervous about playing because I don't want to love it again because that's what lost us, blah, blah, blah. And he opens up to her as well. And he's like, I'm scared to be vulnerable around you anymore. And I'm being vulnerable by saying this. And by saying this, I don't have to get angry and yell at you for going on tour with Chris Keller because I was feeling vulnerable then too. Now I have the language to really express my complex feelings and thoughts about this thing so now we can discuss it rationally yeah and getting out of that environment underneath Dan's Dan's thumb yeah I think really helps him as well absolutely unpacking all of that trauma that Dan has caused him I feel like we've seen that progression exactly exactly and and we don't get a lot of that in tv nowadays or even back in 2006 so that is One thing that I think the creators of One Tree Hill have always done really well is to show that boys can be vulnerable and they can have these big emotions and figure out how to deal with them in a nonviolent manner. Mm -hmm. Which, that's getting me thinking now about Zan. So, Zan does react violently Mm -hmm. at the end of this episode. So, like, I wonder, like, what is the... Is the show trying to... Maybe the show's not trying to drive home a lesson at all here, but the fact that Jimmy does not kill anyone... Um, he shoots somebody by accident, but he doesn't kill anyone. Mm-hmm. Dan, meanwhile, sees the gun, and his first instinct is, let me pick this up, let me shoot this guy. What, you, like, what is the show trying to say here, if anything at all? I don't think that there's any lesson there, and, and I think that any lesson that they may have been trying to put in the whole episode is completely undone by this, because it creates this spectacle and this farce over what actually happens. And so the kids can't necessarily re- process what really happened because they don't know what really happened. Yeah. And so it's it's a lot of now complex trauma because eventually we know that Dan admits to the murder. He goes to jail. Then everyone who was there when that happened now has to go through the reprocessing of all of their emotions and kind of figuring out what it means that they felt this way about Jimmy for so long when he was also maybe kind of a victim. And. I think that's interesting what you said, because I was basically thinking that in so many words that the ending of this does undo any lesson that could be taught here. I definitely agree with that, especially because right before, you know, Dan comes in all of that, Keith's like, bud, what are you doing? What's going on? And he's like, I wanted them to leave me alone. I wanted them to like me. You know, I just wanted everything to not be what it is right now and making me feel the way that I'm feeling right now. And that really is beautiful because, again, like people who are suicidal, they do have a lot of these feelings. People who are bullied, they do have a lot of these feelings. And in terms of a bullying storyline that goes too far and ends in a suicide, you know, as far, far as like what could have been the storyline for this episode, that was, would have been really salient. But again, it just gets completely undone by everybody thinking that he's a murderer when really it was Dan. Right, exactly. 
obviously this is like the most pivotal episode of One Tree Hill. Mm -hmm. And in that way, I wouldn't undo it because there is the whole redemption arc of Dan eventually. And, Mm -hmm. you know, that story is so rich. But at the same time, I almost wish that like these are two separate stories, you know? Yeah. Yes, exactly. All of it being together, it doesn't really send a message like that gun violence needs to be like we need to do something about gun violence. We need to do something about mental health, like whatever the message they may have been trying. It doesn't really work because in the end, this is TV and they had the opportunity to really propel the story itself and Dan killing his brother I mean, it changes. It could have been like a separate episode. Yeah, it just changes the whole narrative that the whole episode was building towards. And it's a cliffhanger. Like, yeah, that's what it was meant to be. And I think also in terms of doing a story about gun violence, Dan is definitely the best person to be the vehicle for that kind of a storyline. He is exactly the type of person who has that psychology to go somewhere and to shoot people because he's not getting what he wants. He's not getting what he wants from Keith. You know, he's not getting what he wants from Karen. He's not getting what he wants from Deb. Like, he has narcissistic qualities, absolutely. I can't, you know, definitively diagnose him with anything because he's not my patient. He's not my client. But he shows narcissistic tendencies and... He also shows some antisocial tendencies as well. And he doesn't meet like that little triad for sociopathy or whatever, uh, psychopathy, because we've never seen him like torturing animals or setting fires. Uh, That's Deb. (laughs) But... (laughs) Oh my God. (laughs) Um, But... Just to set fire. She doesn't torture animals that we know. (laughs) (laughs) But we... We know that like these are a lot of the psychological factors that do lead to someone to to do gun violence. And he does have really easy access to firearms. He's the freaking mayor. You know, he he could have had his own storyline about gun violence. And then Jimmy could have had his own storyline again about bullying, depression and what that leads to. Right, right. Wow. Leaves us a lot to think about, I believe. Yeah, that was really good. Uh, yeah. Now, uh, so I know, like, this episode is very flawed. I, you know, I get that. But I still feel sympathy for Jimmy by the end of this episode. That's me personally, and the two of you can speak for yourself here. But I- I'm just wondering, like, should we as the audience feel guilty for sympathizing with him? No, and I think the way that they did do the episode makes it really nice to not feel guilty for feeling sympathy for Jimmy because he didn't do anything. And then Mm -hmm. he was wrongfully blamed for a death that he didn't do. You know, he didn't want to hurt anyone. He wanted to hurt himself and he did hurt himself. And he, you know, says that he didn't mean to hurt Peyton and he's, you know, I'm so sorry. I'm so sorry. You know, you get those apologies from him you get that sense that he knows he he fucked up and he didn't mean to do it and he wishes that he could make it better but he can't because it was a bullet it wasn't like you know a little smack or something like that you could i'm sorry you can apologize after you smack someone you can't really apologize after you shoot someone (laughs) right exactly and just kind of that like all of that really lends to feeling that sympathy for jimmy especially again he gets blamed for this death other person that actually like was trying to help him and that i think lends the most credence to that sympathy because you're like but he didn't you know 
that's not who he was. We saw the real Jimmy right before this happened. Yeah. And just like you said, it is kind of a shame that it gets undone by having Zan kill Keith instead. And then the storyline, the storyline for the rest of the series, I would argue, focuses on that fact. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, but yeah, this this whole storyline's kind of undone. And even like the episodes that that occur after this one too, I feel like we're supposed to believe that oh, all these kids like learn some type of lesson, and then like how do they learn this lesson? Oh, they go to a cabin in episode eighteen, but they still go with like the same friends. They have the same friends and to. Fallout Boy. Like yeah, <laughs> really casual, the typical way that most teens get over CPTSD: going to a cabin with Fallout Boy. <laughs> Yes. So it's just, kind of, it is kind of weird to think about it, but yeah. I don't know. I kind of see the cabin as a way of them processing everything that happened in their own way. I think more the party was, was more that than the cabin. You know, that was a, a reclamation. Yeah, and, true. And I did like that. I, I think that that's a really good way to help someone cope with trauma. But again, bringing it back to Degrassi, when... They had that school shooting time, time stand still, that episode. They had multiple episodes that after that that dealt with like the trauma that everyone was facing. And some people faced a lot more trauma than others. You know, there was a character that almost got shot. And so she takes the day off and like goes to the beach and just like tries to be a kid. Then there are people who were friends with the person that was shot. So they're in group. They're talking about their emotions. And then there are just people who were in the school. And it shows that maybe they're able to get over a little bit easier because they didn't see anything. They didn't experience anything. And this show is just like, okay, it was traumatic. Bye, next. See, One Tree Hill does an awful job, and we've said this before, with truly addressing mental health and seeing characters, specifically Peyton, in a counseling session. Like in, like, (laughs) you know, multiple counseling sessions. Yeah. <laughs> for the for the listeners at home, Gavi just like you know, raise her hands up in the air in frustration. Like clutching my Peyton. pearls, my poor baby Peyton. No, she absolutely has like or should have. If Peyton Sawyer were a real human being, she would have complex PTSD, CPTSD. Mm-hmm. But because she's a TV character, she just bounces back after three episodes every time, and she goes through something violently traumatic at least once per season. Usually more. And we haven't even gotten to season four. So, like, it's just, it's wild to me. And it's, I can't believe, like, they got away with not showing that. Yeah. No, it's it's definitely really frustrating. And I think, I know, Jeremy, you had a question about, you know, Peyton's actions during this episode. And Peyton has experienced so much trauma. And the one consistent thing throughout all of those traumas has been Lucas being there. Mm Mm-hmm. So when, whenever she's feeling terrified, it's Lucas that comes to her rescue. And so what I was thinking was it's possible that she has this mild form of hero worship syndrome. And, oh. and hero worship syndrome is basically when you feel such overwhelming reverence to the people who are saving you. So sometimes that is firemen, some or fire people rather. Sometimes that's police, although now really that's very rare. Um, you know, sometimes it's a doctor. Oftentimes it's the doctor that performed the complicated surgery to your heart and now you're gonna live another 40 years. And for pain, that's just Lucas. And she even says, you're always mm. saving me. 
And so in that regard, like in one way, she has Lucas on this pedestal and we see this like just throughout the series. She's always like making excuses for Lucas, um, who is really the bad guy, even though Nathan is supposed to be the bad guy. Lucas has always been the bad guy. <laughs> oh boy, Jeremy would agree it's with that. Secret, but... Thank you, Galvi. I feel affirmed. <laughs> He's that guy that's like, but I'm a nice guy. Like, why do you go for dicks like Nathan? You know? Yeah. Maybe Jasmine himself. That. Who knows? Um, <laughs> um, but also for pain, it's possible that she thought that she wasn't going to make it out. You know, she she was like, I'm, I can't feel it anymore. I'm getting kind of cold. I'm getting really sleepy. Like, if I tell you that I love you right now, would you hold it against me? Because I've lost a lot of blood. So clearly she's saying that she is unsure if she's going to live and she wants him to know how she feels about him. And she wants to just do this one last thing that she really wants to do and that's kiss him and in that respect you know a lot of people do a lot of crazy things when they think they're about to die right exactly so is it like would you say Peyton is just like trauma bonded with Lucas like oh she's 100% trauma bonded with Lucas just every traumatic event she gets more and more bonded to him and I think that that's also an issue you know again because she's never getting the therapy that she needs the only thing she's getting is like Lucas's presence but again Lucas is not a good guy if she were with the new and improved Nathan he would be like let's talk about your emotions like clearly you're feeling really overwhelmed right now. What's going on? And Lucas is either like, you're being annoying or, wow, it's so cool that you're moody. And like, neither of those are particularly helpful to her. But if she had had a therapist, it's possible that she would have married someone who was actually good for her. <laughs> yes. Someone who actually cared about her. Mm-hmm, right. And Lucas can care about her too, but it is kind of, it, it is. I feel like, it, yeah, it is kind of problematic that... This is why Peyton feels so attracted to Lucas. Yeah, and and Lucas is like, this is my manic pixie dream girl. That's that's what this is, and and she is exactly mm. that, and that's all I'm going to see her as. She's not an actual full fledged human, and I think that that's a lot of the time why she finds herself in the situations that she finds herself in because she just has no one to process her trauma and emotions with. So I take it you're not a latent shipper. <laughs> <laughs> I'm Brucus. If if I'm gonna if if Lucas is gonna be with anyone, I would be Brucus. Yes. She challenges him. She is to Lucas what Haley is to Nathan. You know, and I like that. But Brooke also deserves so much better, and Julian is wonderful. So that's yes, good. Yes, absolutely. <laughs> yeah, like, the, the, the more I continue along with the show, like, I was always, like, and, you know, if you go back and listen to our older episodes, like, it's always Caitlin and I button head to head. I'm the Brooklyn Shipper. <laughs> She's the Leighton Shipper. But, like, the, the further I get through this rewatch with the podcast, the more I realize, yeah, Brooke should not be with Lucas either. Yeah. I don't think Lucas should be with no, anyone. Yeah, exactly. No one should be with <laughs> Lucas. Lucas should just maybe hang out with his mom a little bit more uh, be nicer to her because he's not really that nice to her even though she's a really great mother who again is really open and like wants to talk things through with him instead of just punishing him like Dan would um, yeah but Brooke is also the only realistic person to not marry the person that she was dating in high school like that's not a thing that most people do <laughs> But in Tree Hill, she's the weird one. Everyone's she's with the everyone. odd one. Out. Yep. <laughs> you know? And again, yes. it's like a small town, but then everyone should have been married at 19, not just Haley and, and Nathan, you know, if you're going to go the small town route. 
Yeah, like everybody is married. Yeah, everybody's married to their high school sweetheart for the most part. Yeah, it's yeah. either everybody is or nobody is, or maybe one person is. <laughs> right. I feel bad saying this stuff. My older sister actually did marry her high school sweetheart, and so did my best friend from middle school. So, uh, no, Caitlin, you're still yeah, in your high school. You're not married. We're not married, but you but are still. Yeah, we've been together. Yeah, a long so it time. does. It does happen, but in a friend group of like four. It wouldn't oh, be, yeah. like, three of them. <laughs> Absolutely not. <laughs> yes. Oh, my gosh. Wow. But, yes, I'm sorry, Caitlin, you're outnumbered. Normally, Gavi, we ask our guests, like, are you Team Brucus or Team Layton at the beginning? We're like, this is a serious conversation. Maybe we won't do it. But it came up anyway. <laughs> so, yeah. As it well, always seems to. Like <laughs> I just think that Brooke is wonderful, and I like that she's always calling people out on their shit because... Like, that's the type of person I am, too. So I really related to her. Um, and she deserves so much more than she got from 90%, I would say, of the people that she was with. Yeah, absolutely. Definitely. All right, Kavi, those are all of the questions we have, uh, both related to the episode and not related to the episode. <laughs> <laughs> unless, there, unless there's anything you want to add? Um. Oh, um... Just kind of how this show tried to talk about how this trauma, you know, of, of experiences, experiencing a school shooting can stay with you in terms of when I think it's Peyton's crying and she's like, they're all going to come, all the reporters, we're going to be the next sensation. And the reporter even is like, you know, we love like death and, and tragedy in this country. And, and you know, we're going to put this on the air for many, many days in a row like we do or like we did with all of them. Now there's too many to report on, unfortunately. Um, but it seems like aware that these kinds of traumas don't just affect the people who were there, but other people as well. Um, um, the shooting at Parklands, you know, a, a bunch of children died and I knew one of those kids. I had just seen her like two weeks prior to that. She was hanging out with my dog, Chad Michael Murray. And then all of a sudden she wasn't there. and. I didn't know her that well. That was my mom's best friend's niece, but I knew her. And so that did affect me for a very long time. And it still does really affect me, even though, again, I have that very tangential, very superficial relationship with her. And so these traumas, they amplify and they affect so many more people than one would think. And it's been going on for over 20 years. And you know, I think it's Abby who's like, we're just kids. Like, this isn't supposed to happen. We're supposed to be able to grow up and become adults and realize that, like, this shit doesn't matter. Um, and now the kids from Columbine are parents themselves. And this is still going on. And we know all of these things. We know about how this trauma is affecting everybody in this country. And we're still not really doing anything about it. And I think that that is just really sad because we have the data. And I know that a lot of people are like, but the Second Amendment, it referred to muskets. If you want a musket, go ahead. It also referred to a well-regulated militia. We don't have that. The law only applies to a well-regulated militia. So if you want to form a well-regulated militia, and again, regulated by the government generally, go ahead. But if you want to be a traditionalist about it, like talking to you, Alito, only people who are members of a militia can have guns, and those guns can only be muskets. And those miss 90% of the time. And it's like, no one's saying that you can't, like, have a, a gun for self-protection at home. You know, I don't know anything mm -hmm. about guns. But why do you need war-type weapons? 
That's Personally, the problem. Yeah. Yeah, I don't think that we should be allowed to own more than two types of guns, and the types of guns should be like a handgun or a hunting rifle and like a regular like hunting like shotgun, I don't know what. I'm not familiar with it too, but like a hunting regular like deer hunting buck hunting gun and that's it we shouldn't be able to buy weapons of war that's ridiculous oh yeah absolutely i don't even understand unless you're gonna do something like these shooters go into schools and nightclubs and wherever like unless you're planning some attack like that why do you need a weapon Oh, for all the wild boars that come to my lawn, of course, I need an automatic weapon so I can shoot 500 rounds to the wild hogs. Like, that's ridiculous. And that also is what makes this episode inaccurate, because Jimmy just had a handgun, and that's not what we see now. Yeah, he would have, if it was now, he would have gone to the gun store and been like, hello, my good man, I am 18 years old and I would like a gun. And I don't know what the gun laws are like in the Carolinas, but, like, in Texas, they would have just been like, sounds good, here's a gun. Yeah, I was about to say, like, is there any data about uh, people who do mass school shootings? Like, do they bring handguns? Like, you know, quote-unquote normal guns like that? Is I, I mean, so. I don't know on the data from, you know, 2006 when this was happening. I know um, at Columbine they did not use handguns. I think they used, like, bigger guns. They also had bombs. Bombs, That yes. didn't go off, luckily. Yeah, because they messed up the bombs Thank goodness. Um, But no, a lot of the time now we're seeing that people are getting weapons of war to use when they feel upset that things have not gone their way. Mm -hmm. And again, like there are red flags. Many, many, many of the mass shooters that we know about, that we've caught, we've prosecuted, have histories of violence, domestic violence, family violence, you know, intimate partner violence beating up someone at a bar, you know, all of these things, they have shown to be aggressive. And somehow they're still able to get not only guns, but what I consider weapons of mass destruction. You know, spraying 500 bullets in one minute is... No one needs that. Not even You don't even need that in war. I'm sorry. That's too many bullets. It's wild what our country is facing. It just seems to be getting worse and worse and we've learned so much from 2006 and it's scary that we're not using that to make change yeah. let me rephrase that normal people want to make change politicians seem to want to prevent that from actually happening yeah and it's not even like there's nothing that we can do as non-politicians to fix this at all and i think that that's what's most disheartening is that feeling of almost impotency, you know, like I just can sit here and listen and bear witness until I have CPTSD, but that's the only thing that I can do, or I being the proverbial me. I, as a therapist, can of course talk to people, uh, <laughs> but you know, it's it's that feeling of I can't do anything but rally that I think is also really difficult because we have such good ideas like these red flag gun laws and exactly like you were saying, the politicians just don't want to deal with it. And because they're not personally affected, they don't feel the need to do anything about it. They actually make looser gun laws in conservative states. So it's not even that they don't want to do anything. They actually want to just reverse it, thinking somehow that's going... I mean, what result are they expecting? 
by doing right. that. And and it's so funny because a common refrain when people are like, we need red flag gun laws, we need stricter gun laws is like, but the criminals will always find a way to get a gun. And it's like, yeah, maybe, but look at, I don't know, the UK, they banned guns. They have a special unit within the police force and only those special cops are allowed to use guns. And guess what? They don't really have mass shootings. They have mass stabbing events where seven people were injured. That's the most recent one that I can think of. And that was a couple of years ago. And again, that is horrible and terrible and traumatizing. Absolutely. But the impact that an automatic gun can make versus the impact of a hunting knife, the amount of lives that could be saved is astronomical. Yeah, like I have heard some conservatives try to use that narrative about the UK as well. They'll say that, oh, like we won't have mass shootings, but we'll have mass stabbings instead. But it's like, it's still easier to control a mass stabbing than it is a mass shooting. Yeah. And because I mean, like, look what happens with, with the police force, how they don't like react to shootings. It happened in this fucking episode here, too. Yeah, they just stood there. The police didn't do anything. That's a really interesting point. Nathan says to Lucas, the police are going to wait in game plan. They always do Mm -hmm. that. And it just makes me think of Uvalde. Like, yes, that's exactly what I was thinking when they ran into the building. I was like, just like the parents. They know that the cops aren't going to help because the cops do not have a legal obligation to do anything to help us. And I think that's what's the most scary especially because we live in these times. There's literally a mm-hmm. parent who went inside the building to save their kid and the cops couldn't even right. do that. Like, I just don't understand how that's helpful. How, what, what is their purpose if it's not that? How are we not protecting children? When Sandy Hook happened and no gun laws were passed, that's when America decided that actually the lives of children don't matter. And that should, oh have, been, that should have been the end of it. That should have been a big red flag. Yeah, I gotta say, like, watching those scenes of the police is just really, like, I didn't think about, I didn't think about it much when I first watched it in 2006, but watching it today, it's really jarring to think, like, wow, we haven't moved beyond this, have we? No, the police have not. Their strategy seems to be the same. And you think about the bravery of the parents, you know, at Uvalde and the fictional bravery of Lucas and Nathan to run into this school without any body armor, you know, especially in Uvalde, they were all, yeah, and Keith, they were all, all the cops had body armor and they were standing in the hallway and they had their guns. And if just four of them had bursted at the same time, it would have been over very quickly, you know? Mm -hmm. And when they were in the tutor center, I can't remember the name of the kid, but he was like, what happens if we all rush him? He can't shoot all of us at the same time. And like that, but for cops, can't shoot all the cops at the same time. You actually... You should be putting yourself on the line. That's what the whole thin blue line is, is the line for our lives that you're not saving. And the fact that the student was put in that position where, like, he had to do that. Yeah. It's really tragic, you know? And so scary, but it's also, like, back to the stabbings. You just need two people to rush a stabber. And no one might even die, you know, as opposed (laughs) to six people rushing a shooter. And think about the whole SWAT team that was... On the outside, when Lucas brought Peyton out there and he has to put his arms up or behind his back or whatever, like, these guys Mm -hmm. are fully protected. And they can't go into the school? Like, a whole group of them? Against... Against one teenager? Yeah, one. And, like, it's only usually one or two kids who are doing this. Yeah. Right. Even though they did hear from Jimmy on the 911 call, like, uh, we will start shooting students, so... 
they could have like had the idea in their head that there were multiple shooters, but I don't know. It's not like, like listen, like you don't hear any shots going off or anything. And there wouldn't be more shooters than SWAT team members. Right, exactly. Exactly, yeah. It's just weird because it, it almost feels like, you know, the people who, who are members of the police force are just playing cops and robbers. And, you know, everyday civilians are the ones who have to actually do the copping. It's very tragic. Mulgavi, thank you so, so much for giving us a lot to think about. Of course. Thank you for having me. This is a really interesting conversation. I'm so happy to hear that. (laughs) 